Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vista. It's awesome to see you here. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin Fisher. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if it's your first time here, second time here, maybe even third time here, uh, we are especially glad that you joined us. We hope that you feel loved, that you feel welcome, that you feel wanted, that you feel right at home here at the Vista. Uh, today, we are in the second week of our series called First Corinthians, Sustaining a Revolution. We're going to be it for the next couple months. Uh, and just, by the way, a reminder that if you have trouble like reading the Bible consistently, and, and who doesn't? I have trouble reading the Bible consistently. Then you can join in our reading text plan. So you just text the word VISTA to 97,097000. And every week on Monday, you get a text message that will let you know what our scripture reading is for the week, what we're going to be discussing on Sunday. So it's a great way to kind of immerse ourselves more deeply as a community uh, in the text that we'll be looking at for the next two or three months. Okay, so make sure that you do that. Then by way of a a brief recap, so the book of 1 Corinthians is more appropriately known as the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Now Corinth was a very large and influential city in the ancient world due in large part to its very strategic location on the isthmus that brought the upper and lower halves of ancient Greece together. So see that narrow strip of land there? Corinth, right on the tip of it, making it a great place for travel, for commerce, for trade. And then here are a couple of pictures of modern Corinth, just to kind of give you a feel for what the city is actually like. So here's a view looking out at the bay, not Lake Belton, but it's okay. Uh, And then a view from the other direction, this big, beautiful, thousand-plus-foot-tall limestone mountain known as the Acro-Corinth that loomed over the city. And so now we've got a bit of a a better sense for the the world that this letter lived in. And as Dave mentioned last week, Paul spent uh, around 50 AD, he gets to Corinth, and he spends around 18 months there. Uh, It's a story that is told in Acts chapter 18. And then after that, Paul moves on to uh, establish some more churches. But about two or three years later, he catches wind that there's some trouble in Corinth, a lot of trouble. And so Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians in the hopes of sorting it out a little bit. So Dave walked us through chapter 1 last week, and today we will pick things up about halfway through chapter 2, okay? 1 Corinthians 2. We'll start in verse 12, then we'll pause for a second. All right, so Paul says, now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things which have been freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, meaning words and thoughts filled by the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by nobody. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? And yet we have been given the mind of Christ. We'll pause here. So in these verses, Paul's talking about wisdom and spiritual maturity. Uh, And he starts out in verse 12 by making this distinction between the spirit of the world on the one hand and then the spirit who is from God on the other hand. Then in verse 13, he makes a similar distinction between human wisdom and spiritual wisdom. And Paul's basic point is really pretty easy to understand. He's just saying that Christians are filled with the spirit of God and thus have direct access to the wisdom of God. And this should, in some sense, make them distinct and different from people who do not have direct access to the spirit and wisdom of God. And at this point, the Corinthians, they probably mostly agree with Paul. 
Okay, we read between the lines a little bit and we discern that they like to think of themselves as very spiritually mature and enlightened people. So much so, in fact, that they had actually accused Paul of not being deep enough in his teachings. They said, that guy, Paul, he's great. He's just not very deep. I just wish he would go a little bit deeper sometimes. Okay? And so at this point, we'll use a boxing analogy, right? Paul has is, Paul is gently jabbed them into a corner a little bit with some of these words about you know, wisdom and spiritual maturity. He's, he's got their hands down as he's talking about what it means to be spiritually mature and enlightened. They're like, yeah, spiritually mature and enlightened. Talk about that. We like to hear about that because we're spiritually mature and enlightened. And then when they least expect it, bam, Paul comes with the uppercut. You ready for the uppercut? All right, pick it up here. In chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 7. So they're listening. Yeah, this is great, Paul. Keep talking about this. And Paul says, And I, brethren, I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. I had to give you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are still not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife, Among you, are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, yeah, I'm with Paul, I like Paul. And then another one says, well, I like Apollos, he preaches better. Are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what's Paul? Well, they're just servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God, who causes the growth, is everything. First right. Corinthians 3, 1 through 7 there. So, do you want me to let you in on a secret that not many people know? Do you want me to let you in on a secret that not many people know? Yeah, of course you do, because we all do, and we always have. We have always loved this feeling of being the privileged, enlightened Insider, And you know that feeling I'm talking about. It's, it's that delightful feeling that rushes over you when you're talking to somebody and you realize that you know something that they don't know. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, it's fantastic. It's a high like no other. I wish I could take that feeling and inject it just straight into my veins. It's crazy how good it feels to know something somebody else doesn't know, to be the privileged, enlightened insider. And so notice what Paul has done here, okay? He says, yeah, you know what? Some people... They're just not very mature. And they're not very spiritually enlightened. And they're just not very deep. There are some very spiritually immature, unspiritual, and shallow people out there. And the Corinthians are like, come on, Paul, that's right, man. There are some shallow people out there. I want you to get on those shallow people, put them in their place. And Paul's like, okay, I'm about to put the shallow people in their place. Are you ready? Yeah, Paul, put those shallow people in their place. And then Paul, instead of turning and shaming all of the allegedly shallow people over here, Paul turns right back to all of the allegedly deep people and he says, you, you are the immature, unspiritual, and shallow people. It's not them. It's you. And then Paul just leans into him. Could you hear it? Paul says, you know what? You've criticized me for not being deep enough in my teachings. And you know what? You were right. You were actually right. But in my defense, I had to dumb my teaching down because I was dealing with you. And you're a bunch of spiritual toddlers. You're not spiritual men and women. So I had to take that milk, warm it up, put it in the baba, and feed you with the baba. That's what I had to do with you little Corinthians because you weren't ready for that strong, solid food. You're still on the bottle. And so Paul is just crushing these people. 
He's, he's just crushing them. In no uncertain terms, he has called them uh, immature, unspiritual, and shallow. And then in verses 3 through 4, he explains why. He says, you're immature and you're shallow because you are filled with jealousy and quarreling. Jealousy and quarreling. And this first word, jealousy, it's the Greek word, zelos. Zelos, and as you can probably surmise, it evokes this notion of misplaced zeal. You hear it, zelos, misplaced zeal. Uh, Paul uses it in Romans 10, verse 2, to refer to Jews who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Here's what he says. He says, for I testify about them, this is Jews who have rejected Jesus, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Okay? They got a lot of zeal, but they don't have a lot of knowledge. So they're passionate, right? They got a lot of passion, but it's very misplaced passion. Kind of like, a, kind of like this guy. Okay? So in an attempt to win the love of Miley Cyrus, this man covered his body with 40 tattoos devoted to Miley. Now, this is passion, to be sure. Um, but it is a passion that got him a restraining order instead of a proposal. Right? <laughs> Can you imagine being on your first date? Hey, wonderful to meet you. Before we order appetizers, uh, would you like to see the 40 tattoos all over my body dedicated to you? No, you don't let people know you're crazy until after you marry them. <laughs> Poor guy. So the Corinthians, you know, they're, they're immature because they're filled with this misplaced passion, this misplaced zeal. And then related to that, they're immature because they're constantly quarreling. I like that word. Quarreling. And here Paul, he, he circles back to and he amplifies something he said back in chapter 1, something Dave talked about last week. So apparently these Corinthians, they have divided themselves up into all of these quarreling constituencies. Right? There's some people like, well, I, I like Paul the best. He's the best. No, I like Peter. No, I like Apollos. No, I like Jesus. No, I like Calvin. No, I like Wesley. On and on and on. And shocker, all of these quarreling constituencies think they're doing it right and everybody else is doing it wrong. Again, to be clear, we all have preferences. Preferences aren't bad, but preferences that divide us, that's a bit of a problem, so says Paul. And so here we have bumped up against something that I like to call uh, an iceberg. You get the metaphor. Uh, it looks like a little bitty thing. But it's actually a really, really, really big thing. Because when we think about, you know, what are the biggest dangers, threats to Christian faithfulness in the modern world? What do we tend to think about? What are the threats? You think about things like uh, rampant sexual immorality. Or we think about things like the, uh, the secularization of culture or relentless religious pluralism. And yet scripture makes it very, very, very clear that Christian rivalry and divisiveness is a radically heretical threat to Christian faithfulness. Not what the world's doing out there. No, no, no. What we do in here, it's a radical threat to Christian faithfulness. In fact, in John 17, Jesus went so far as to say that Christian disunity makes the gospel unbelievable. Here's how he says it. John 17, verses 20 through 23. Jesus is praying to the Father. and He says, Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these apostles alone, but for also all of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, I pray that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one. 
just as we're one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, here it is again, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Okay? So have you ever wondered what it would take for the world to believe that God sent Jesus? I wonder that all the time. What would it take? What would it take the, the perfect rational argument for the existence of God? Would it take some sort of scientific breakthrough and discovery, prove God created the universe? Would it take a, a Christian takeover of all world governments, all Supreme Courts everywhere? What would it take for the world to believe that God sent Jesus? Well, here's what Jesus said it would take. You ready? If my disciples could get along, if they could be united, if they could learn how to love each other, then the world could believe that God sent me. <laughs> All this to say, our disunity makes the gospel unbelievable. No, no hyperbole here. You just heard it from Jesus. Our disunity makes the gospel unbelievable. Because how in the world is the world supposed to believe that Jesus broke down the barrier separating God from humanity? That's a pretty big barrier, you know? How is the world supposed to believe Jesus did that? when Jesus does not even appear to be powerful enough to break down the barrier separating Baptists from Catholics and Republicans from Democrats and white and black and brown Christians from each other. Gerhard Lofink, he's a theologian, he puts it like this. I love this quote. He says, nobody's ever seen God. You can't see God. What can be seen is only the church. And if it's no longer one but divided then the world can only faintly behold the mystery of Christ because the mirror has been shattered. The division of the people of God makes it almost impossible for the world to believe. And again, no hyperbole involved here. You heard it from Jesus' mouth himself. All that to say, a united, peaceable church is the most powerful testimony that we can offer a bickering, angry, quarreling world. More powerful than any argument or Supreme Court takeover that we could ever make. A united, peaceful church. That's what the world needs to see. And I want to dig in a little bit here because I think we struggle to understand the severity of our divisiveness because we're really, really, really good at justifying it. All right, and here's what I mean. Our sinful, self-righteous divisiveness justifies itself by masquerading as a desire for purity and for depth. Right? Our sinful self-righteousness camouflages itself and justifies itself by masquerading as a desire for purity and for depth. So here's how it works. So we're, we're divisive and gossipy and judgmental, but we justify it by going, well, you know, okay, I do kind of look down on them, I'll admit it, but it's just because they're not biblical enough or charismatic enough or deep enough or committed enough or woke enough or conservative enough. And so, yes, I'm a little bit judgmental, but they're shallow and wrong, and that's way worse, and so I'm absolved. Sound familiar? Well, sounds familiar to me. And I've coined a name for this this phenomenon, right? this sneaky, self-righteous divisiveness. And I like to call it being fake deep. <laughs> All right? 
Some of you are like, yeah, I know what that means. Fake deep. And we've all been fake deep from time to time because we all love to feel good about ourselves. And one of the best ways to feel good about yourself is to what? Is to look down on others. Nothing will get you higher than looking down on other people, man. We all love looking down on other people and being fake deep is one of the best ways to do it because it's looking down on other people for a good cause. I mean, I'm looking down on people, but I'm doing the Lord's work. You know, they're just not this enough. They're not that enough. Somebody's got to do it. Sign me up for looking down on people for a righteous cause. Monday through Sunday, I am available. And so while we're busy patting ourselves on the back for this self-righteous divisiveness, here comes Paul, bam, with that surprise uppercut again. He says, you know, when you think the problem is that somebody else is immature and unspiritual, and shallow. The real problem is that you are immature and unspiritual and shallow. Because when you sit in self-congratulatory judgment of somebody else's spiritual immaturity, all you've really done is reveal your own spiritual immaturity. And this reminds me of this absolutely humiliating story from my childhood. Um, I was, I think, a junior in high school, had really started leaning into my faith. First time I really took my faith seriously. Uh, and because of that, I'd come to the opinion that my youth pastor's teaching was now too shallow for me. And so I remember going to him one day, me, this 16-year-old kid who two weeks ago only cared about playing basketball and chasing ghosts. Those are the only two things in the world I care about two weeks ago. And I tell him that I wanted to start a Bible study where I could take things a little bit deeper than he was taking them. And I even told him that I wanted to name this Bible study, and this is painful to confess, The Deep End. <laughs> so you go to Keith for shallow and you come to Austin, you know, Deep End Bible study. And bless his heart, y'all, he was so gentle with me. I mean, here's this punk kid. Not all 16-year-olds are punks. I was a punk. This punk kid who's been following Jesus for about five minutes. I've been following Jesus for five minutes. Telling this man who's been a pastor for 20 years that his teaching was too shallow and I could do his job better than him. And you know what he said to me? He said, Austin, I think it's awesome that God has got a hold of your heart. I can see it. And I think it's incredible you want to start this Bible study. He didn't even shut me down. He said, but just remember that being smart and being deep, being smart and being passionate doesn't make you deep. Being humble being kind, that's what makes you deep. Remember it to this day. And that brings us back to this iceberg issue of Christian rivalry and divisiveness. So at current count, there are over 40,000 different Christian denominations. Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, this Baptist, that Baptist, Catholic, Episcopal, Presbyterian, 40,000. Okay. Now, I'll admit, I don't know like, how many denominations there's supposed to be. Uh, that is a question with an answer above my pay grade. But I am confident that 40,000 is like a few thousand too many. And it bears sad witness to our unending capacity to pick silly, stupid fights with each other and a fake, deep, misguided attempt to prove our rightness and everybody else's wrongness. And I know that here at the Vista, we've got people from, you know, all across the spectrum, man. It's one of the things I love most about our church. It makes things tricky sometimes, but I, I love it. And I know the reason that a lot of us 
are here is because we have rejected certain things from our denominational or religious upbringing, be that Baptist or Methodist or Catholic or Episcopal or Pentecostal, whatever it is. And, and that's okay. Right? It's okay and it's important to be able to tell the truth about those experiences. But, but, it is so, so important, y'all, that we never, ever, ever slander other churches or denominations in our attempt to justify why we left them. You hear me on that one? I get it. I get that we've got wounds. I've got wounds. But it is so critically important that we never, ever slander other churches or denominations. You catch somebody doing it, you check them. And this is why our leadership here at the Vista have felt really strong that a top priority going forward for us is making sure that we are a source of unity among local churches and not another source of rivalry and divisiveness. Because the church's disunity is a deep and gaping wound. It's not something to be proud about. And we want to be a source of healing for that wound. Amen? You with me on that one? You get it? It's important. It's so important. And that brings us to everybody's favorite, least favorite topic, politics. You want to talk about politics? So impeachment, show of hands. I'm just kidding. Some of y'all. <gasps> you said the I word in church. So my grandfather was uh, the kindest man I've ever known. I'm sure your grandfather was great too, but mine was the best. And towards the end of his life, uh, I remember sitting with him in his living room in Lufkin, Texas, and we were watching the returns from an election. And uh, as has become typical, the, the coverage was pretty nasty. And I remember my grandfather at this certain point just letting out this deep, exasperated sigh. You know, when you're just so frustrated by something, you don't even have anything else to do, you just, <sighs> which was the equivalent of my grandfather losing it, right? He said, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't think of ourselves as Republicans or Democrats. So I've been voting for 65 years, and I voted for plenty of Democrats, and I voted for plenty of Republicans. And most of all, it just never, ever occurred to me to think of one party as all good and the other party as all bad. Never occurred to me. And my grandfather was right. He was absolutely right, and you probably know it. You see, we are becoming increasingly religious about our politics, which means that our self-righteous divisiveness has been transposed, has been translated into a very political key. For example, numerous studies have shown that political convictions now shape religious beliefs more than religious beliefs shape political convictions. Okay, so in other words, whereas, you know, if you're a Christian... You follow Jesus. Jesus should be shaping your political beliefs. It is now the case that our political convictions increasingly shape what we believe about Jesus, about the church, and about faithful Christian witness in the world. Or perhaps more vividly consider this. From the beginning of human history, race has been the most powerful source of disunity in human culture. By far, nothing else is even close. But there are signs that politics has now surpassed race as the most powerful source of disunity in modern American culture. For example, uh, at this point, 90% of Americans are now okay with interracial marriage. Now, that number should be higher, but it is astonishingly high given that 60 years ago, nobody was okay with it. 
Understand? Six years ago, nobody was okay with this. Now 90% of Americans are okay with it, which is unbelievable. It's really great. But before we start, you know, patting ourselves on the back for our open-mindedness too much, we should note that our divisiveness hasn't really gone away. No, it's merely migrated away from race and toward politics. Because now, 55% of Americans say they would have a problem with their child entering into an interpolitical marriage. <laughs> you believe that? Absolutely, you can believe it. Right? So whereas used to, we all had a problem with interracial marriage. You would say, no daughter of mine is ever going to marry a white man. No daughter of mine is ever going to marry a black man. Now we say, no daughter of mine is ever going to marry a Republican. No daughter of mine is ever going to marry a Democrat. Sweetheart, I love you, but if you marry a liberal, then you are out and don't come back for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and we, uh, we have an election coming up, as I understand it, a few months. And it's going to be the most divisive election in modern American history, hands down. Which means, church, that we have a remarkable opportunity, probably once in a generation opportunity, to show an angry, bickering culture the peaceable, unifying way of Jesus the Messiah. And so church, are we going to take that opportunity to show the world a different way? I hope so. I'll be watching your Facebook feeds very closely, okay? I hope we do take it, but I'm going to be watching. A couple Saturdays ago, we were uh, at the house and um, we were just all in a bad mood. You ever have one of those days? Even the dog was in a bad mood. You know, uh, Allison and I, we got in the biggest fight of our marriage over where we were going to go eat brunch. It was one of those. This is one of those fights where you're like, you know, I just don't know if this is going to work out. We've had a good run. We had some great kids. But I just don't know, man. We're not, mm, I don't know. Uh, the boys are sitting on the couch watching TV fighting over pillows. Your kids ever gotten that fight? This is my pillow. He's touching my pillow. He's touching me with his finger. He's touching me with his toe. I want to watch this. I want to watch that. It was miserable. And everybody was acting miserably. So after two hours sitting there on the couch, inventing things to fight over, we finally got up off the couch, went on a hike, and the most remarkable thing happened. We stopped fighting. It was an act of God. The Red Sea parted again. Right? We went on a four-hour long hike with a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and we never got in a single fight. And why do you think that was? That's pretty simple, right? We didn't fight because we had better things to do than fight. Now, we had, uh, we had rocks to throw in the creek. We threw like a, a million rocks in the creek. There are no rocks left. We had, to catch, uh, we had to catch some frogs and chase mom with them. And we had to explore caves. And when you've got fun, important stuff like that to do, you just don't have time to fight over brunch and pillows. And so church, here's the deal. If we don't have better things to do than pick silly, self-righteous fights with each other, then we've got better things to do. You follow me? If we don't have better things to do than pick fights with each other, then we got better things to do. We just don't know it yet. And so when that fake, deep, self-righteous divisiveness sets in to our lives, into our families, into our church, it's because we don't have a big, 
beautiful sense of mission. It's because we're sitting on the couch fighting over brunch and pillows, pillows, instead of going out and exploring this big, bad, beautiful world that God made and that God is in the process of redeeming. Amen? I want to end by having us do something a little bit different. I want everybody to stand up and grab hands with the person beside you, and I'm going to need a partner. So, Steve, will you hop up here with me, man? We got it. All right, so church, here's the deal. You, you do not and you will never agree with this person about everything. Steve's a Bears fan. You're not going to agree about everything. But, did you just do sickle? Yeah. But, but, Jesus has made an agreement with his Father through the Spirit to bind you, to bind us together in this rowdy, diverse family called the church. Okay, And this, hold those hands up, this, this is God's plan to save the world. And this is how we sustain Jesus' revolution. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you who dwell in perfect unity among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, <coughs> we confess that the church is meant to be a place where that perfect unity is put on display for the whole world to see. And so we confess that our disunity is a devastating sin. We confess our fake, deep, spiritual self-righteousness, the sinful delight we take in looking down on others. And yet, we are filled with hope because you have overcome even our self-righteousness, as hard as that is to believe. And so help us to accept the unity that you have already accomplished to learn to disagree with each other charitably, to stop bickering amongst ourselves because we got better things to do than bicker. We've got good news to share. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a journey. I've never been the best guy. I am a sinner, a long way from being a saint, but I'm working on it. <laughs> so um, whether or not we officially serve on the host team, What's some encouragement you can give us to make sure that we don't just sit around and act like kids forever, but that we, we take ownership and kind of embrace Vista, our community, as a home that we're responsible for? Well, another reason I, I would say that, because when I came here, I didn't really belong to anything. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to be a part of, I wanted not only my family at home, but be a part of a, a unity as a something together. And Vista is just that. You know, I see people out waving signs, little kids giving high fives, and I see people running, actually running to church. That's something I've never seen before, you know, and that's to get the Holy Spirit and hear the, a word of God. But be a part, join something, the host team, um, anything to, just to be a part of is very good, you know, and I'm... I'm trying to find the right words to say, but to be a member of this church is a blessing, a blessing more than you can realize. I think you found the right words, man. <laughs> Y'all get Paul here. All right, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you so much for today. We gather as uh, certainly a, a room full of sinners who have known your love. God, some of us have been far from you and 
run and like the younger son, we've, we've been wasting our lives on loose living and doing what we want to do. Then a lot of us have, have stayed lost while staying home. We've been critical and hateful. And we have not shown your love to sinners. And we haven't seen all the ways that we're lost. But whether or not we're, you know, younger children or older children, we, we pray that you would help us to grow up and embrace our call to move beyond being found. And that's to become spiritual fathers and mothers who run out to sinners, humiliate ourselves if we have to, put our hands on them, and remind them that they have a place in the kingdom of God. And so God, we, we're thankful that Vista is a place for sinners. It always will be. But we pray that you would help us to grow up to embrace this call and destiny we've been given to be people who are sinners, but sinners who run out to other sinners, take care of them, love on them. Sinners who walk the world as hosts and not guests. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.